0: Exodus 15, beginning at verse 22. This is God's holy word, friends. Take care how you hear it. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, It was named Mara, And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water, and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us again. Tonight, may He write its eternal truth on every one of our hearts. Let's pray, shall we? Oh, Lord, this is your word, and we need it. Lord Jesus, you have said that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we need this. Not only do we need daily bread, but we need this bread. So help us now by your Holy Spirit to. Read and mark and learn and inwardly comprehend all that we read and consider and study tonight. Grant us your Holy Spirit's ministry and illumination. And seal these things, seal these truths to our hearts for our everlasting good and for your everlasting glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are all kinds of reasons to love the book of Exodus and to... Be so fond of the second book of the scripture, but chief among them, I think, is how we see the heart of Israel on full display. And many times it ain't a pretty sight. We see in Israel a macrocosm, if you like, a large-scale version of what often occurs in our own heart, in our own attitudes. The heart attitude of God's people in every age, whether they're at the Red Sea or whether they're in East Tennessee. We are people. Who are truly and profoundly grateful to the Lord for his wonderful acts of mercy and deliverance to us? Israel was. We are genuinely, sincerely grateful, earnest even in our heartfelt devotion toward him. Israel was, and so are we. And yet, in the next 10 minutes, by our thoughts or our flippant attitudes or our functionally atheistic actions, our lives might be essentially communicating God? What God? never heard of him. One pastor that I know tipped me off to the fact that there's actually a term in clinical psychiatry for the type of behavior exhibited here. I wonder if you've heard of it. A help rejecting complainer. A help rejecting complainer. Do you know anyone like that? There's a perfectly reasonable solution to the problem. In fact, They have plenty of evidence and data before them to make a wise decision and to solve the problem. They may even have previous experience and have been down this road before so that they know what to do. But for some inexplicable reason, they don't act to solve the problem. Don't help me, they seem to say. Just let me wallow or revel in the problem for a while. I'm miserable and you need to notice it okay well, you have a problem friend so but but, but if you just do this no well, okay don't, but don't you want to fix it be quiet okay all right we, we've got this overwhelming trial have you have you brought it before the Lord have you sought his help or the help of your friends have you have you reflected maybe on what the lord's instructions were on this particular kind of situation no but don't you want this issue to be resolved? be quiet okay God, what God? Don't bother me with that. It's not a pretty thing. And if we're honest, this kind of self-absorbed wallowing creeps into our hearts far more often than we would care to admit. Take a look at Israel in our text tonight. God has delivered her. He has parted the waters of the Red Sea. They have been rescued and saved from their enemies in this marvelous act of redemption. And the bulk of chapter 15... If you'll recall, the first 21 verses records for us the marvelous celebratory praise that took place on the shore of the sea in the wake of this great act. The the people burst into jubilant song on account of God's great salvation, the song of Moses and the song of Miriam. We looked at that last week, last Lord's Day. That's chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. And then you come to verse 22 and 20 through 27, and it's incredibly jarring Moving very abruptly from that scene of triumph and worship and gratitude and celebration unto God to this one, now so full of complaint and bitterness and unbelief. And it becomes even more perplexing when, as you read on in the story, you see how this is a pattern, almost a national characteristic of Israel at this point in her history. And yet, although the people complain against God again and again and again in this part of Exodus, God, nevertheless, has a plan for their wilderness journey. There are some profoundly important lessons for Israel to learn here in their wilderness wanderings, and likewise, too, lessons for us to learn if we are followers of the Lord Jesus. We live, as we so often say, as a pilgrim people, sojourning through a world that is not our home. Thus, there are lessons here for us as well. I love how one author put it. God is at work in the wilderness trials of his people to prove themselves utterly deficient and to prove himself utterly sufficient for all the challenges that life might bring them. The wilderness journey of Israel is a picture to us of the Christian life, Close quote. The Old Testament and the story of Israel especially is incredibly useful for us New Covenant Christians. The Bible itself tells us that. Just like what we read in 1 Corinthians 10, just a few moments ago, the Apostle Paul's words, that these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. The Christian life is a pilgrimage, and not only is the wilderness wandering of Israel over these four decades a nice metaphor, but it really is a spiritual reality that's reflective of our life as pilgrims through a barren land. The new heavens and new earth will come and God will renew all things. And we shall forever dwell with the Lord in that new heaven a new earth, a renewed creation. But that world is our home. And that world is not yet. We are pilgrims on a wilderness journey toward the promised land. Here, as Scripture says, we have no lasting city, but we are on our way to that lasting city. And all along the way, God is working to strip us of our confidence in ourselves and to teach us to rest our confidence entirely upon him. That's what's really going on in our passage tonight. One commentator put it this way. God is at work sanctifying his people and teaching them by hard trials to trust him teaching them by hard trials to trust him, close quote. So let's take a look at this passage tonight. Two things I want us to study this evening, and the first is this, the first point, our pilgrimage through this life, if we are not careful, can make us forgetful. Our pilgrimage through this life, if we are not careful, can make us forgetful. And don't you love how, once again, in God's happy providence, how Pastor Wilborn just this morning preached, at least in part, from His sermon on the need to remember. How much is the Christian life on this need to remember? We heard about that in Sunday school, the need to remember. Well, we didn't plan it that way. We didn't do this deliberately, but yet again, here we are. The need to remember because our pilgrimage can make us forgetful if we're not careful. Verses 22 to 25. After the parting of the waters, God has now sent the Israelites on their three days journey into the wilderness of Shur, and for three days they find no water to drink until they come to the oasis at Mara. Now, Mara, the word Mara, verse 23, means bitter. It's the same Hebrew root, by the way, as the name Mary, bitter. You may remember Naomi in the book of Ruth. After she has lost everything, she returns back to Bethlehem. And she told the women who greeted her no longer to call her Naomi, but to call her Mara, because the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. Mara means bitter. And no sooner do the people of Israel taste the bitter water than they begin to grumble against Moses saying, verse 24, what shall we drink? What's interesting about this scene isn't so much that they are venting or grumbling or griping at Moses. After all, we've seen this before. There's a certain predictability, a pattern of Israel's behavior that we've come to expect as we read through the Exodus narrative. Rather, what is remarkable is that all this takes place only three days after God had split the waters of the Red Sea and brought them across in safety. He has just accomplished a miracle, a mighty act of redemption. He protected them from their enemies. He preserved them in such a way that, according to Scripture, they didn't so much as get wet as they passed through the Red Sea on the dry ground as they journeyed through. God had just done all that. What's so remarkable is that while they complain three days later, the pillar of cloud continues to shade them from the sun as they travel by day, and the pillar of fire continues to light up the night so that they can see in darkness when they travel. Exodus 13 verse 22 tells us that, that the pillar traveled with them throughout their journey. The angel of the Lord, God himself, is in that pillar. Exodus 14 verses 19 and 24 tell us that. In that pillar, God the Lord as the angel of the Lord, is quite truly, literally, before their very eyes. He is with them in a most manifest, present way, and still they complain. What's so remarkable is that this kind of dreadful forgetfulness of God and what God can do, this mindlessness, if you like, is characteristic of none other than Pharaoh. Do you recall? Over and over again, God displays his power before Pharaoh, and it seems as though Pharaoh would, would change his mind, he'd have, he'd have a moment of what seemed like repentance, but then he seems to forget, or purposely forgets, and he hardens his heart and turns back to unbelief. The thing is, we would expect that of Pharaoh. We, we would expect that of ungodly, pagan, hard-hearted, depraved Pharaoh. The enemy of God's people, a denier of the one true God, certainly not a worshipper of the one true God, but now this kind of forgetfulness, this dreadful forgetfulness seems to characterize God's own covenant people themselves. Our default reaction when we read this passage, at least mine, maybe yours as well, is to read a passage like this and to scoff and roll my eyes and think, ugh, you stupid, silly Hebrews. How can you be so daft? And yet, what does the Apostle Paul say? These things happen to them as examples for us. In other words, As we read Israel's story, we are looking in the mirror. I really like how one commentator put it. He said, the fact is, when the hardships of life in the wilderness really begin to press us and stretch us, yesterday's salvation is so terribly easy to forget. Close quote. We can become a desensitized people. Simply by virtue of all the matter with which we are bombarded, we can be desensitized to the truly significant Researchers and psychologists and others have noted this for years, and there's a perfect illustration of this in the evening news. Right? If you if you watch the evening news, you'll know that it's not uncommon for the news anchor to move from a very tragic, somber report to a rather light-hearted and peppy one almost instantaneously. The the murder of another human being is a grievous and serious event that ought to be lamented, and yet the news anchor will quickly transition from The family welcomes visitors at the funeral home beginning at 7 o'clock, followed by the service to mourn the dead, and right away shift to, well, Bob, how about those Lakers? Man, aren't they something? Bombarded with information, we do not know how to distinguish the consequential from the inconsequential, the, the weighty and the significant from the trivial, and unfortunately all things tend to end up bleeding into this category of the inconsequential, something that we give a passing glance toward, And then quickly we dismiss it and forget it. What happens with everyday things that are germane to, if you will, secular living, quote-unquote, can very easily become our pattern and habit in the realm of the, quote-unquote, sacred things that pertain to God and our Christian living. God's great salvation toward his people can become old hat in the hearts and minds of his people. And part of the agenda, you see, in that great song of praise, that song of Moses in the first part of chapter 15, was to hopefully inculcate a lesson in the hearts of the Israelites, to inculcate this idea that we never move beyond God's salvation. That is, we never outgrow it, but rather we are constantly, we are to constantly look back on what he has done that it might continue to bolster and train our faith for the continuing journey. For the living of these days. You may remember when we studied it last week, last Lord's Day, even the lyrics of the Song of Moses and the Song of Miriam capture this posture. That is, we ought to be, we must be looking back on what God has done, but also looking forward in future anticipation of what He will do in accordance with His promises. Looking back and looking forward in faithful anticipation. If you want to glance over it, you'll see there that the opening 12 verses of Exodus 15, they look back. What has God just done for us? What is this salvation, this redemption out of Egypt, passing through the Red Sea? Look at what his right arm, his holy arm have done, have wrought for his people. And then the remainder of the song, verse 13 onward, the remainder of the song looks forward to the future. They celebrate a future that Israel has not yet come to. But what he will do, what God will certainly do in establishing them in the land, looking back on God's past acts of salvation, equips them for life, trusting God for the days ahead. It sought to teach them the same lesson as Paul would teach the Philippians in Philippians 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The Lord who saved Will keep on saving still. The God who redeemed will keep providing and guiding and sustaining. That was the lesson, the lesson that they needed to learn and were oh so prone to quickly forget. I wonder how quickly we forget it, friends. One pastor reminded me of the famous Robert Murray McShane. McShane wrote about his times of daily devotion, his time early in the morning reading God's word and praying. And McShane explained that as he did these daily devotions, his time in the Word and prayer, he did not do so so much to store up fuel, so to speak, for the rest of the day. Rather, McShane said this, I have a daily devotional time early in the morning every day. I'm in the Word. I'm calling out to God not to store up manna so much for the day ahead, but rather to train the eye, to give the eye a habit of looking in a particular direction that will last all the day long. Close quote. In the Morris home, we have our coffee set on an automatic timer. Uh, Usually we're awake before it starts to go off, but only just barely. Uh, We might stir a few minutes before it comes on and just lie there in bed in the cool, dark, faint light of the early morning. And after a few minutes, the coffee starts to to bubble and gurgle the way those machines do to percolate. And as soon as it does, the, the dog begins to stretch and wake up because he knows he's been trained to realize by frequent observation that when he hears the coffee brewing, mom and dad are about to be awake. And when mom and dad are awake, that means breakfast. Or at least that's what our dog used to do. Now he's so terribly deaf that he doesn't hear anything that happens, even if there was a burglar breaking in. But at least this used to be his general habit. When the coffee maker would start percolating, he would begin to start stirring. By frequent repetition, by frequent repeating, his expectations had been trained. Now, this is part of what the Scriptures are doing in the renewing of our minds, brothers and sisters. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing in our hearts by frequent return to the Scripture and frequent reminder of God's promises. Our hearts and minds, our expectations, even our sensibilities are being trained. We must train our hearts and minds in the habit of constantly looking back to God's mighty acts and deliverances, lest today's troubles overwhelm us. Today's troubles are sufficient for today, the Lord Jesus said. And if we're not careful, today's troubles will overwhelm us, Lest, or we must, therefore, lest they overwhelm us, look back on what God has done. Because if we keep our eyes trained on God's faithfulness, most especially the cross and the empty tomb, if we keep our eyes trained on God's faithfulness, to borrow McShane's imagery here, our hearts will eventually catch up with what our minds know to be true. Isn't that so often the case? Your heart doesn't believe it. Your mind knows it to be true. How much of the Christian life is simply setting your mind on that which is true and eventually your heart and soul catch up in the meantime? Lord, we believe. Help thou our unbelief. God is always faithful, especially when we are faithless. And that God has given his own son for us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things and make good on all his promises? We trust him. He is good, and he is faithful, and so we trust him. What a contrast between the people and Moses. I wonder if, you, if that stood out to you as we read through the text. Grumbling versus crying in faith. The people are grumbling. Grumbling against Moses, do you see that there? And the people, verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Beginning of verse 25. And he, Moses, cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him what to do. He cried to the Lord. Do you see that? This is the cry of faith. This is the expression of faith. It's not a panic. It's not a despair. He cries out to God because he stakes all his confidence on this God. And God answered and intervened and God provided. I love how one pastor put it. Forgetfulness, he said, of God's past salvation leads to grumbling in today's crises. Forgetfulness of God's past salvation leads to grumbling in today's crises. But faith in the cross produces prayer and therefore trust in daily troubles. Close quote. So there's a reminder. If we are not careful, our earthly pilgrimage can, can make us forgetful of who God is and what he's like and forgetful of his promises. Our hearts and minds need training to be fixed on the character and the dependability of our promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God, a character most supremely revealed in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God who keeps every covenant oath he has swore. Praise and blessed be his name. That's the first thing. If we're not careful, our earthly pilgrimage can make us forgetful. But then secondly, the second broad idea for us to see here is that our pilgrimage will make us like Christ. Our pilgrimage will make us like Christ. Verses 25, 26, and 27. Notice in verse 25, as Moses prays, the Lord shows him a log that makes the bitter water to become sweet. Now, many times in the various commentaries that are out there, when you come upon this passage, you see one of two tendencies when it comes to this log. One tendency that you find in the commentaries is to spiritualize the log. You know, there's, there's there's a tree thrown into the bitter waters, well, that's the cross. Well, the cross makes bitter waters sweet. That, that makes for a nice spiritual allegory, but I'm not sure that that's quite right. Now, other commentaries will simply offer a naturalistic explanation. What, what kind of wood was it that changes the taste of the water? Some sort of Mediterranean poplar. Well, that might be very interesting, but it's not the point. Besides, this seems to be a miraculous event, a supernatural event. Actually, as one man suggested, I rather think it's more of a live-action parable, The verse says, the Lord showed Moses a log. Now the word there for showed comes from the same Hebrew root as the word Torah, God's law, his teaching, his instruction. God instructs, God Torahs, if you like, Moses, on where to find this particular log and what to do with it. And as Moses obeys, the water is made safe and drinkable and sweet. And I think that that is an intentional play on words. Now, the original Hebrew audience would have picked up on that and they would have heard that, that clever word play. It's a bit lost on us English speakers. But it is intentional because then in the second half of verse 25 and on into verse 26, what does God proceed to talk about? His law, his commandments, his statutes. He uses a, a number of synonyms for Torah, his statutes, his rules, his voice, his commandments. He tells them, that if they will obey the instruction of the Lord, that the diseases that fell on Egypt would not fall on them. Because he is, verse 26, the Lord, your healer. In other words, Egypt was quite forgetful of God. Pharaoh was denying God. He was ignoring God's presence and commands. And it did not end well for him. So precious Israel... Beloved of God, do not be like Egypt, he's imploring them. Listen to the voice of your Lord. Listen and obey, and it will go well for you. Though tempted, do not make the same mistake that Egypt did. God need not be your bitter judge, but rather he can be the Lord, our, your healer. If you obey God's instruction, it will go well for you. And just to reinforce that point, notice verse 27. They come to Elam, a place with 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. That's an odd little detail to us, perhaps, but it was not to these original Hebrews. It's very likely that these were rounded numbers that were making a point, and the point is sufficiency, completeness. To this ancient culture, these numbers would have signified completion 12 springs. Well, one freshwater spring for each one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Seventy palm shades or palm trees for shade and rest. Seven, that's the number of perfection, times ten, meaning plenty, meaning abundance. Seventy palm trees. Oh, what a pleasant place this is to rest because our God has met our need perfectly and completely. He is the Lord who provides. He is the Lord who protects. He is the Lord who heals them. Now, I think we often chafe instinctively when we think about this, this notion of, if we will but obey, it shall go well for us. We chafe instinctively, perhaps we inwardly object or struggle with this idea that if we obey the Lord's commands, it will go well and there is blessing to be had. Our instinct, I think, particularly in Reformed circles as we are, our instinct is to protect the truth that salvation is a gift of God's free grace, apart from any merit of our own or any work that we might perform, to which we say, Amen. Amen to that. That is a glorious and precious truth. But our cherishing and protecting of that truth must not allow us to obscure or play down or ignore another, a different truth of God's word. And that is that progress, growth in the Christian life and growth and progress and a great deal of blessedness is conditioned upon our faithful, dutiful obedience. There is blessing to be found in obedience. No one emulated that more than our Lord Jesus. And the goal of the Christian life is to make us more like him, after all. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 15, verses 9 through 11? I'm sure you do. Remember these words? As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Obedience, Jesus says, leads to an experience of the love of the Father and the Son who came to us with new depth and intimacy and that this kind of depth of fellowship might manifest itself to us. Jesus says obedience leads to abiding in Christ and the fullness of joy. Yes, obedience does not merit your justification. Yes, obedience, your performance, we do not believe in any kind of meritorious works righteousness. Your obedience does not merit your entrance into eternal life and into the, through the gates of heaven. However, obedience, attention, a careful striving after the commands, the good commands of Christ, leads to abiding in him and leads to fullness of joy. Do we believe that, or do we instinctively recoil at that? One of my professors in seminary was keen to make this point. Every command of God is meant for your good, Christian, and is meant for your blessing. And that goes all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, where you'll remember the very first command that's ever given by God to human beings is itself a blessing. In Genesis 1, all the commands are blessings and all of the blessings are commands. And so there's this tying together of blessing and obedience. The very first word that man ever heard God say to him was a word of blessing. Or, as Psalm 1 puts it, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The life of faith, the life of blessing, the life that can find bitter waters and bitter providences made sweet is a life and heart that obeys and delights in the law of the Lord. And these two things go together, you know. That is, if we are forgetful, as we thought about in the first half of our sermon, if we are forgetful of our God and forgetful of his character and promises, we are very likely to be grumbling about today's troubles and, quite honestly, we're likely not obeying the Lord and likely not believing and trusting him to provide. But, if we know that God's ways are the best ways, even when they are the hardest ways, and even when we cannot make sense of it all in the moment if we believe that he only designs our dross to consume and our gold to refine, if we trust that every cross and every trial that he brings are for our good, then ours will be a life that listens diligently to our God and Savior. An obedient life. A life that finds satisfaction in the Lord, our healer, knowing that us he'll never, no never, no never forsake. May we be such a people that our food would be to do the will of our God. Isn't that what Jesus said? Don't we desire to be more and more like him and conform to his image? That we would be such a people that our food would be to do the will of our God and that God would shape our affections and appetites such that our duty would become our delight. Striving after obedience to our Lord and his commands and hearkening to his voice, striving after his instructions. Why? For our everlasting joy and satisfaction in Him. May it be so. Shall we pray? Lord our God, we need to be reminded in our own wildernesses of your sustaining grace. That Israel's, the story of Israel's journey is not a mere parable or metaphor, but it is a spiritual reality of a people on a pilgrim journey who are so prone to God forgetfulness. May we not be a people of God forgetfulness. Convict us of our sins. Show us our need. Display your glory. Demand, O God, the honor and the duty which we owe to your name. And by the sanctifying grace and the ministry of your Holy Spirit, may we render it to you gladly. May it be our joy to hearken to your voice as you enable us by your sustaining grace. Help us to trust and help us to believe it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.